You're listening to The Outclassed Podcast with Mike Redding and Blake Seifert, exploring excellence in teaching, tech, and leadership. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Outclassed Podcast. As always, I've got Blake with me, and we're smack bang in the middle of a series which is unpacking the seven essential elements of school transformation. And if you haven't caught all the episodes that have come before it, you can dig right back to episode 11 where we did a bit of a kickoff call and we just went through a bit of an overview of each of the seven elements and how they can apply to your school and what you need to be looking at from a high level. And then we've run through a, a, a podcast on vision, another one on culture, learning design, community engagement. And then this week, it's all about technology and infrastructure. So this is really Blake's playground and where he likes to play. So looking forward to unpacking some of these concepts with you. So how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I'm doing well. Uh, you know, just still here in lockdown and looking forward to unpacking this today. There's obviously, you know, a big passion of mine, this, this part of the equation. So keen to, to see what we, what common ground we find and where we differ, but uh, no, it's exciting. Excellent. Well, I thought today we might just skip over the news. It's all fake anyway, or so we're told, and uh, just dive straight into the topic today because I know there's a bit that we need to cover. But probably this topic is more important than it has been ever in the history of schooling, especially when you've got schools in a hybrid environment. Uh, I was talking to a school in New South Wales, Australia this week, and they had ravaging fires at the beginning of the year. And so they were shut for that. And then they just got back into school and then COVID hit. So they had to shut and then they just got back from COVID and now they're in flooding. And so now they're shut again. So it's kind of like this model where we're finding schools need to open and close very rapidly and try to minimize the disruption to learning. And one of the things that is enabling us to do that is having a really solid technology plan, like the one we're discussing and some great robust infrastructure. And so really important at the moment. And out of the seven elements, Google, Apple, and Microsoft all agree that there are seven elements that you need to address. And they all agree what the seven elements are. The only thing they disagree on is what we're going to talk about today, which is what's the infrastructure you need and what device is best for learning. So looking forward to unpacking that with you guys. So Blake, um, talk us through your, your thoughts on the importance of tech in school from a, an IT perspective. Obviously you've got vested interest in it, but where do you, where do you sit on this? Well, obviously I'm a technologist. I'm interested in the power of technology, but I think it's important to recognize that it's a transformational power. So it can transform bad into worse or it can transform good into great. That's, that's my sort of ideology around it. So a lot of people sort of, you know, they come out to our school and they love what we're doing and then they'll sort of take the, the nuts and bolts of it. So the structure of it say, okay, we're going to just drop in this Chromebook program at our school like you have without all of the, the other parts of this plan. We're talking about the vision and the learning and everything. So obviously we have to get all that right and we have to have good culture around it and we have to have a good strategy and vision for that technology, for those, you know, the actual physical devices and the software to actually work in the hands of teachers and students. So, so for me, you know, it's obviously a big passion and I love the, the potential of technology and, uh, and I'll touch a little bit on some fail. My, my fail today is really around where technology has kind of let us down a little bit as well. And we're, we're not necessarily reaching the potential um, that we've been promised uh, with, with, you know, all these fandangle softwares, devices, AI, all these big buzzwords, but where's the actual transformation? Where's the, the innovation? So all the revolution, as it was called here in Australia with uh, our um, building education revolutions scheme. So 
yeah, we're, um, we're obviously a long way down the path and we'll talk about today, you know, those, those steps in the culture of innovation, preparing, planning, executing, refining, you know, that's Google's model. And then they have this thing called 10X. And I feel like we're kind of in this refining stage now where I'm at McKinnon, where we're trying to sort of optimize things. So it's that last 10% and they often say, you know, the Pareto principle, the last 20% is 80% of the work. And we find that a lot where what we're trying to do is so specific that the industry hasn't caught up yet. We don't have many options. We have to build our own and that takes 10 times as long. And then they talk about 10Xing and I'm always a bit dubious about trying to 10X things because I'm not sure how realistic it is, but I think it's a good provocation to say how far can you go and what, where, where do we head to next? Yeah. And I don't want people to miss what you're saying right there because I mean, you do a lot of school tours. I've been there and I've seen schools come through and teachers ringing you on the phone and saying, hey, I want to just come have a look at what you're doing. Yeah, we and the big today. miss, yeah, okay, so there you go. But I think the big miss, here's, here's the problem I see, is that as far as I can tell, and we work in, I don't know, easily a thousand schools a year. Every technology, Every school that's doing something great with technology has built their plan from the ground up. And so what we find is a tendency for people to go, well, that looks good. So I'm just going to try and take that program, jam it into my school and then wonder why it doesn't work. So when we're talking about technology plans, what we want you to do is listen to the principle behind it, not necessarily the program of it, and then start to think about how do you design it? Because as Blake said, it's hard work. It's custom built. It needs to be something that's specific to you. So we're going to give you some principles and some broad brush scope, things to think about and, you know, some, some boundary lines to play in if you like, but at the end of the day, there's no shortcut for doing the work. No. And I, um, one of the reasons I don't consult anymore is the frustration I had of, you know, doing talks at conferences or going into schools and and explaining how we got to where we got to, and then watching nothing happen. No innovation takes place. No, no institutional change takes place. People come and talk to us all the time and say, we want to go this way. And I think they already have an idea in their head of what they want to do. What they want from us is to be able to be a box ticking exercise and say, well, no, we're following this model that's, that's already worked at McKinnon or it's already worked here, it's already worked there, rather than going back and saying, okay, we're going to build this vision up and we can use where we think that's going to work with our culture. You know, let's look at a school that uses iPads. Let's look at a school that uses, you know, G Suite or Office 365 or whatever the, the technology is and say, does that fit with our culture? Does that fit with our vision, our strategy? And is that, you know, a good model for us rather than saying, Oh, I really like that in a vacuum and then just trying to take sort of a square peg and put it in a round hole. That's, that's, you know, one of the big frustrations I had. And, and, and also why I like doing things like this, or we can share a little bit and people can take things that work. And, you know, I'm all for, you know, showing people what's out there and, and giving them sort of perspective on what's possible. I think that's important, but just trying to take a, like I said, a square peg and put it in a round hole. That's, um, that's where we run into problems. Yep. I think, exactly what you just said there we one of the things we need to be very cognizant of is the fact that there's no shortcuts to this they say that it takes three to five years to build culture you're gonna to have to take this so take the pressure off you don't have to solve all your problems right now i mean you've been at mckinnon how long was it 12 years something like that yeah 13 um, years yeah and then and yeah. that's a big that's a big thing that comes up and they, they when they look at our our engagement and our usage you know we're creating over a thousand google documents every school day and they're thinking wow that's some impressive you know how did you get there well it wasn't from a from a two-year plan you know it's been something ingrained we we were one of the first schools to go g suite back in 2011 i think it was so you know we've already had nine ten years of of gestation you know to build up the confidence in the staff body and to move us forward. 
Mm. And Dylan Williams, one of the educational researchers, I like the quote he says is that you shouldn't ask what's working because everything's going to work somewhere. But he says not everything works everywhere. So you need to be asking under what circumstances does this work? And so when schools are, if you're going through and you're doing a school tour, then it's up to the school's got to understand that the context, the culture, the vision, the, the years of mm. thinking and planning and failing and moving forward and all of those sorts of things and saying, and asking the question, so what's, what is allowing this to work? So again, we're going to talk about devices and technology and infrastructure. We're not telling you what works everywhere. We're just saying, that some things work somewhere, not everything works everywhere, and it's under what conditions will this work? And that's that's what you need to bring to the table. It's sort of like those podcasts you hear about like successful business people, and mm-hmm. they're talking about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and these kind of outliers. And Tim Ferriss has a great model for this, where he says, I'm not interested in the, in the outliers, the people that are in the 1%. He wants to find someone that went from being, you know, in the middle band at the 50% range and then got to 90% and did that in a really short amount of time. Mm. They're the schools you've got to look for. And often, you know, I think the school I'm in is, is in some ways a bit of an outlier. We're a highly academic school. We're at, right at the, at the top there. And that kind of precludes us from being that useful. Uh, I think it's better to look at a school that's like had really huge challenges with staffing or with students and socioeconomic issues and they've managed to transform themselves into a you know a leading school i think those those stories are the interesting ones because they're probably the ones that are going to apply to a wider range of schools and a wider audience yeah and I so basically what i'm saying is that don't listen to me yeah <laughs> well i can guarantee what sits underneath that is great leadership and great culture because uh, that's going to be one of the, the best determinants of transformation in that place. But if you're interested in looking at, uh, I guess, a bit of a high-level, broad-brushed approach of what you need to be thinking, then Google's got a great school transformation framework, and we've been using that as a bit of a model for the last few episodes of this. But they, as Blake mentioned, they've got a, a slide, and we'll, we'll link this up for you in the show notes, but it talks about how to prepare for your technology how to plan for it, how to execute it, how to refine it, and how to 10x it. And basically what they're saying is there's a bit of a a roadmap or a bit of a plan that you need to think about. Microsoft take it a little bit further in their education transformation framework, uh, where they're not just talking about a roadmap for technology as such, but they talk about intelligent learning environments, which is kind of interesting. It brings in some of the thinking around flexible learning spaces and asks the question, how do we, you know, empower collaboration and, um, how is it flexible? And quite interestingly, they go into things like energy efficiency, which I know you're interested in, Blake, uh, mm-hmm. and also security policy and that sort of thing. But let's just run through a, a real high-level plan of how you would approach looking at your technology and infrastructure, and then maybe we'll just pull some of these bits and pieces out and, and have a bit of a chat around some checklists and things like that. So basically, if you just want to have a look at it from a high level, what you want to do first is just test what you think is going to work in a small pilot. So you don't have to go and change everything in your school all at the same time. You want to think about all the different options, choose an option that you think is going to work for you and then just run a pilot. And then you want to just go through and then get some data on that and on that and just see, well, how did the infrastructure hold up and so on? I know Blake, you've done a lot of work around that with schools as well and just saying, what's the infrastructure like? What's your internet like? Uh, Connection points, all of that. So we will circle back to that one. Uh, Then you've got the rollout. So once you've got a pilot that you're happy with and you think that you've got some uh, results that you want to roll out. So that's when you start to roll out and then uh, you start to keep gathering data and you, 
use that data to inform your decisions and identify blockers and things like that. So where's some places that you're going to break down? Uh, then you want to optimize your support. And this is super important. And that's uh, something that I've been really Im uh, impressed with, Blake, the way that you run support at your school. And we've talked about that a little bit as well. And then you, they're talking about that 10X that you're talking about, Blake, where you're able to get to that point where the, you're able to rapidly deploy new technology. You're allowed to pivot. You can change. Uh, you can adapt new tech as it's coming out and so on because you've got the infrastructure that's sort of there and, and so on. So Which is sort of ironic in a way, isn't it? As you grow bigger, you know, they're saying, well, you need to be able to be more agile, which is usually a trait of a smaller, more nimble approach. So, you know, there's definitely challenges and, and dichotomies in there of, of balancing those two. Yeah. So let's, um, let's wind that all the way back to the beginning in terms of considering your options and analyzing your infrastructure and so on. What sort of things do you go to Blake when you're thinking, okay, let's, let's analyze what you've already got and thinking about it in terms of vision, but where do you start? Like what sort of data do you want uh, in terms of to be able to start making some decisions? Is it monitoring the internet? Is it uh, how many devices have you got? Is it access points? Uh, you yep. talk the tech stuff and I'll try and translate it into teacher speak. Absolutely. So the first thing is my confidence framework this is something I developed with the Educational Technology Consortium in Victoria. I speak about it a lot, but for me, confidence is sort of the number one thing we want to be focused on. So how are we delivering confidence into the hands of teachers? And if we work our way backwards there, um, there's sort of three main areas. There's access, there's the experience you're having. So the access is sort of how do I get on? Where do I get on? How do I know that tech exists? Then there's the experience side, which is, you know, how good is the experience? How easy is it? Uh, how, you know, how, what happens if something, you know, if something's slow or goes wrong? And then there's the skill side. So that's, you know, do I know how to use it? Have I been trained? Do I have access to training? Do I feel like, you know, I can pick this up and, and, and do more with it than just the basic, you know, understanding of how it works? So with those, those kind of three things, you can look at any technology in your school, whether it's the internet, whether it's, uh, you know, your device selection or your electronic whiteboards that are in classrooms. You know, you can think of any of those technologies and then apply that lens to it and say, okay, well, how are we with access? How are we with reliability, you know, reliability and experience? How are we with skills? And do a self-assessment basically. And, you know, there's a lot of things we sort of forget about when we say, oh, the, this, we need a technology plan. And if you think about, well, okay, let's look at investment, of, you know, of the entire IT investment. And let's say that's roughly around 4% of total spend of your organization. That's what a lot of schools will go off. If we say it's 4%, you know, of a school that maybe is bringing in $20 million a year, that's a lot of investment every year. Uh, where's that going? So if you look at the, the average school, the biggest capital expense is usually projectors in classrooms. And that's not something that we even talk about. You know, we're always talking about iPads and, and cloud services and, you know, data center infrastructure and things like that. But the humble projector or interactive whiteboard in the classroom, you know, constitutes two to $3,000 per classroom. Most schools have 50 classrooms or something. Uh, that's a lot of money. You know, we've got a hundred of them. So you think about that $3,000 over a hundred rooms is a huge investment. And so, you know, start thinking about AV. Okay, well, let's look at that against the confidence framework. How easy is it to access? Is it standardized? Is it familiar for staff? Uh, are they having problems with it? When they do have problems, how do they get support? Do they have to send a kid into a black hole and never get a person back? Send an email and no one ever arrives in their classroom if they need that instant support? You know, those kind of things, thinking about that process and then thinking about the skills that are required 
to run and use the projector when you run into problems, the Windows P and the, you know, display adapters and all the mess that can go on with those. So, you know, that's just one example, but I think that's a, a missed one a lot is the AV stuff, but certainly you've got to think about that. You've got to think about devices. You've got to think about your internet connection. Uh, and there's a whole list of things uh, we can go through, but I think you would probably know in your school environment, the things that aren't great, put them against that framework. And then you can see, okay, well, actually it's, you know, the lack of support or it's the it's the technology itself being unreliable and we need to update it or we need a better structure in place to support it right and you're able to link that up in the show notes that framework absolutely yeah we'll have that in the in the show notes that's cool so do you have and maybe the maybe the answer is no but do you have a baseline like if you've got 50 students you need x amount of up and down of internet for instance or you need so many connection points per devices over a certain square meterage. I don't know. Like, is there, do you have like a baseline that you work off? Well, we used to say that if you've got say like a, a thousand students, you probably need about 500 megabits of internet, but that's changed a lot. I mean, that was back when I was consulting, you know, a few years ago and now we're seeing that creep up and it's really now becoming dependent on classes. You might have all your classes use a certain thing at the same time. And then, it, you know, you need triple. So really the rule of thumb is to, to just monitor it. I and mean, there's so many ways to do that. Your ISP can even do it for you a lot of the time so uh, is to look at uh, your internet service provider. So whoever's, whoever's you know, providing you with the internet can often give you a, a graphs or a dashboard where you, where you can have a look at that, or you can call them and just ask them, you know, are we hitting the limits? And you'll know because things will typically slow down, but, that could also be Wi-Fi and a number of other infrastructural problems, backbone problems, contention issues in, internally uh, on your network. So, you know, this is why we have IT people in schools. And I think this is part of the benefit of uh, the Victorian model where we have techs in schools and rather than a central model like in New South Wales, where it's really difficult for anyone to kind of affect change at the school level because it's all hand handled centrally. Mm. And so... In terms of like access, I know one of the issues we came across in a school was that they had really old access points. So the part where the computer connects to the internet mm. uh, through the wireless box on the roof. And so they had really old infrastructure there. They had lightning fast internet. But the problem was that a computer was connecting to an access point, maybe five classrooms away because it connected to their at some point and then it's just yep. trying to hold on hold on and so the further you way you get from the access point the weaker the signal gets and then the slower their internet is so it's never as simple as just buy more internet hey no and and even new wi-fi access points will have that problem so it's about having smart wi-fi design and that's why you know you look at big systems like ce net for the catholic diocese or even the victorian government they all have specialist teams that understand wi-fi uh, you know, the, the physics of Wi-Fi, how it actually travels through glass and wood and, and they actually map all this out into new buildings and check the locations against, you know, the theory. And that's really important because if you're kind of just going along and slapping some access points in because that's what you did at home, you do run into problems where uh, things will connect, you know, two, three, like you said, two, three, four classrooms away and, and then you're stuck. Then what do you do? You know, you're like, you've got this slow connection, you've got to turn your Wi-Fi off and on and then the class doesn't run very well. And again, you're impacting that teacher confidence. So, you know, I just bring it all, always all the way back to teacher confidence but yeah it, it is difficult and, and the nature of wi-fi just give you a little lesson on how wi-fi works certainly the current version of wi-fi the what you might have seen is ac wi-fi 802.11 ac you might have seen that around that's basically you know the, the best current wi-fi apart from wi-fi 6 which is coming down the pipe at the moment um, that i've 
imagine not many schools would have that sort of next generation stuff. Now that, that AC stuff uh, is still basic Wi-Fi. So the, the speeds are faster, but the underlying technology still says, uh, if you're connected to an access point, that's it. You connected to that access point. It doesn't do, they all say they do smart, intelligent handoff and things. They don't do handoff until the client says, I'm disconnected. I need to find another one. And, you know, you can go all the way down to a terrible connection and sit there for hours until finally it drops you off and then you get a, a new access point or you turn your Wi-Fi off and on. So Wi-Fi is very polite and it doesn't sort of interrupt and change or anything unless you tell it to. Um, so there's fundamental issues with the technology that are going to um, affect your school. Yeah, it's really important to understand that because you have teachers screaming at you. If you're an IT person or a leader saying the internet's not fast enough or it's always breaking or this and that, and you really do need to get to the bottom to understand the fundamental infrastructure stuff. And this is why piloting becomes super important rather than going out mm -hmm. and buying a hundred Chromebooks and then realize that you haven't got enough Wi-Fi and access points to run them and everyone's frustrated and no one uses them. Uh, and it would have been better to do something that was maybe offline as an interim then yeah, you need to understand that in terms of support. That's one of the things they say is like, you need to optimize support for, for any kind of rollout or adoption of technology. Do you have like a baseline figure like X amount of staff or X amount of people in a school needs how many hours of tech support? Like if you've got a hundred students, do you need a tech one day a week? If you've got 500 students, you need someone full time. Is there some kind of rationale around how much money you should spend on IT support? Yep, it just depended on whether you're a primary or secondary. So if you're in, in the primary sector, you probably need a little bit less. I think that uh, a lot of the big systems in Australia sort of have about half the tech support in primary schools, if not less than half per versus a secondary. So if you have someone full-time at a secondary school, that'd be two and a half days in the primary. And often it's a lot less. So um, a lot of government systems have, you know, maybe one day in a primary school that would have you know, three, four, five days in a secondary. So I think, you know, primaries are a bit undervalued in the sense. I think they think it's simpler. You've got one classroom, the teacher's in there the whole time. They kind of get to know their environment. But, you know, if, if you can't reach out for help and you've got a really critical lesson that you need to deliver, there's not endless time <laughs> in the curriculum. And we're seeing that more and more as it gets jammed, packed full of everything. And, you know, when excursions finally come back, hopefully in the next two years, we'll be able to go outside of our school. That'd be nice. You know, when all that comes back, it is, it is trading off time a lot. When you, you lose a lesson, you lose a period, you lose a day, you lose a week. If you guys only in once a week, it could be a whole week. And then they have to make the fix and place an order. And then another week and another week, you go three, four weeks easily uh, without getting your problem solved. And for me, that's unacceptable. I mean, you can't, you can't be successful in that environment. Uh, that's fundamentally going to erode your ability to be creative and think on your feet and adapt to an ever-changing environment so so I, I think you know there's sort of a baseline you, you really want to have someone there every other day as a minimum if you want really good success with your technology now some schools choose to take teacher roles and say you're sort of this uh, tech teacher and we'll give you a bit of a pay rise and you can have some free free load up on your your teaching load and that can work I've seen that work I've also seen that not work but, you know, it just depends on, on your, your environment. But, you know, generally speaking, if you've got 1,000 uh, kids in your school, you probably want two or more full-time people in the technical department if you want to be pushing forward and innovating, not just standing still and kind of break fix. And I think break fix is a big, big problem in the industry. There's this standard called ITIL. I don't know if you've heard of ITIL. It's a help desk no. standard. Are you familiar with that, Mike? No, I haven't heard of it. 
So information technology infrastructure library, that's a set of detailed practices basically for IT service management. So how we look after the infrastructure and the technology that's already there. And so its goal is to align IT services with business needs. But what actually happens is it can convolute and kind of make it difficult and, and make it user aggressive for users to actually get help. So, you know, the old thing of, um, I'm not looking at the problem until it's log logged in the help desk. You know, we, see, we hear that a lot in schools. You know, you've got to log a job or I won't look at it, those kind of things. I think they're kind of user aggressive. Like it's not, it's not actually working with the user. It's saying, you know, I'm not going to do anything until you've done something. It's very transactional mm -hmm. uh, rather than more, you know, working together. How do we, how do we both figure out the best solution for each of us to get the best result? And so, you know, I, I kind of reject ITIL a little bit, and maybe that's my history working with Coles Meyer and seeing it implemented to the letter there and finding that in every way it was inadequate to support the stores. The stores were just upset with the IT guys all the time. And, and thinking while I was there about this idea of, you know, clustering and groups of roaming technicians and things like that. And schools, you know, are usually in a better position. They usually have people on site and it's not all centralized. So you have a chance to not, you know, to be a bit more, participative with the support. Yeah, I think it's even more important too as we're moving towards this hybrid approach to learning in a sense like schools open, schools closed, blended learning and so on where you've, it's not just IT support while you're on campus but also providing that remote support. So I don't know whether yeah. or not that means that you need to uh, you need to um, boost that support a little bit as well and I think there's always a catch too because you obviously we've all got budgets that we're trying to work towards and we're trying to save money. But sometimes if you spend some money, like you were saying on a consultant or a, an expert, that can save you a heck of a lot of money down the track as well. But I guess one of the things we see is just worth being mindful of is sometimes you'll have these people come under a guise of a, an audit or a consult and all they're looking to do is really sell your stuff. So they're just going around your school or your organization and looking for things that they could upgrade because uh, they're going to clip the ticket on the back end of it too. So yeah, the free audit, the free audit's pretty much snake oil at this point. I think I haven't seen too many free audits that don't recommend buying software or hardware that they sell. So. Yeah, and if they don't sell it, they've got a partner down the road and they're clipping a 20% ticket on the sale of that stuff anyway. So yeah, you so you just need to be aware of that. Of that. Yeah. yeah, I think the best thing you can do at your school is just look at all those domains. So look at uh, everything from, you know, the device in the classroom, the AV, just start writing them down. You know, the, the accounts, your account, your network passwords, your permissions, uh, your, your learning software, your learning hardware. So things that aren't just computers, but you've probably got scanners and the odd 3D printer and, you know, digital tablets in the school and things like that. So start thinking about all those areas, write them all down. And then just do a self-assessment against the confidence framework uh, that can help you figure out, okay, are we ready to take on these new things. If we are going to bring in iPads, you know, how, what are the things we're going to have to do in that confidence framework to have success with those iPads? Yep. I think that's um, really good. I mean, yeah, everything from your photocopier to your digital camera, there's all sorts of tech around the school and you're right. Just being aware of it and just knowing how teachers use it and so on uh, is really important. And I think when you're doing that test phase where you're piloting and then you're just going into that rollout, one of the things I'd be monitoring too is just your help desk and how long it takes to get support. And then the yep. other thing we sort of tell schools, we encourage schools to, to monitor two main things is how much stuff is going to support and how long is it taking to reply to that? Because again, like you said, if you've got teachers logging help desk tickets and it takes two weeks to get a response, then they're not going to keep wanting to push in the new technology. Uh, and then the other thing is like, what is the level of support that they're requesting? If it's something that's 
basic all the time that if you just provided some professional development on you to have your help desk tickets, then do that. But if it's like high level, like I'm, you know, doing some real technical collaboration, like I'm pushing the boundaries of what technology can handle, then that gives you a really good impetus to go back to the leadership team and say, I think we need to upgrade because like we're bouncing against our downloads or we're bouncing against the speed of a computer can run at, or, you know, we're pushing the limits of what we've already got. And I think we're ready to take that next step. And you're probably justified in spending the money at that point, right? Yeah, I think the help desk is really hard and I'm like the wrong person to talk to about help desks because I've been through probably 15 of them at this point and I'm, I'm sort of satisfied with what we have now. But the, the general concept of a help desk, you know, you're talking about tracking how many issues come in as, as an indicator uh, and how long those issues are around for. Like, I'll probably push back on that a little because I, I, I worry about like what I saw at Cosmi, which was help desks getting gamed. So people would ring up and say, I got this problem with my, you know, batch server out the back and we'd say, you know, I'd actually go into the issue and try and solve it. And that would take me five, six minutes on a phone call to do that. Uh, And then the smart people (laughs) would just say, yeah, reboot and ring me back. Boom. Three second phone call. Stats are looking great. Your average stats look really good and you know, everything's great. So, you know, I worry about the quality of those help desk tickets um, mm. more than the quantity and, and the numbers, because you might be getting a heap of help desk tickets that are saying uh, one drive is full, you know, and there's nothing you can do about that. They're going to keep coming in because there's a, there's a limit on one drive and you can't change that or you're working to change that over six months. It's going to take you a while to get that program and the funding together for that for next year. In the meantime, you're just getting a swell of help desk tickets and it looks like you're failing. So uh, yeah, I'm always a little mindful about that. I'm using the kind of, those, those indicators on ticket counts. And then open times is an interesting one as well. So how long are tickets open for? Again, it's that reboot thing, I'll just close it. But actually that should stay open. If it's a legitimate problem, uh, there shouldn't be any shame attached to keeping that problem open for a long time to make sure that there are updates. It's still in my list. I'm still looking at it. I still reply to it and, and work on it every week rather than it being like, hey, these, these problems are taking way too long to solve. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's more like, yeah, hey, these problems are taking too long to solve. Uh, what can we change? How can we support the IT infrastructure better? Um, you know, what, what money do we have to spend or what do we need to move? Yeah, and I've seen really interesting ways of doing that support too, like in getting student groups. And I know you, like, you have student interns, I think, at McKinnon as well. But going a little bit further than that and having student techie groups that help with that first level uh, line of support. So it gets to them before it even gets to a help desk ticket. And then you're empowering your, your students and giving them some roles and responsibilities and, and things Absolutely. like that. Well. And there's a lot of power in that, uh, especially young teenagers. I mean, maybe in primary, it's a bit, bit harder. <laughs> you yeah. definitely have people helping you, but probably not answering uh, help desk tickets. But we, you're talking about 10x. We're, we're trying to sort of take that to the extreme and we're building a bit of a program out now with our student administrators, we call them, where we want to give them a pathway from being sort of you know, almost like a, a military rank. You think of it in those contexts of com- coming in at the bottom and doing your basic training and then working up your education so you can get promotions all the way up to sort of managing that team. So at the very high end, you can be like the student admin manager who would actually meet with us, the, the actual IT team, and then hopefully they can take on that intern role because at the end of year 12, we have an intern role every year that's wound over. If anyone wants to hear more about that, I'm happy to um, talk about that in the podcast as well, but giving them a, a pathway up into that intern role that then could eventually, hopefully even lead into a job in the IT team. So uh, the intern role is a paid job, but 
it's only a one year sort of contract position because we sort of take gap year kids and then give them a gap year and they go off to uni, but they could come back into the team or they could work part-time in the team while they're at uni. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how do we 10X that and really, you know, as a school that's building a second campus that has a big STEAM and STEM uh, focus, you know, with the science and technologies, we're going to have all sorts of technology. And how, how do we have experts of 3D printing and of, you know, hydro dipping and of uh, drones and uh, robotics and all this stuff? Well, we can't. We can't have that expertise in every corner of the, the the school at all times the only way we can do that is by empowering students in a program like this where we can have 10 or 20 students uh, all participating and working their way up through this program and potentially even getting industry certificates like microsoft certificates or google certificates or uh, cisco certifications and things like that so yeah I, i've been thinking a lot about this lately so a <laughs> yeah. um, little bit of an aside but certainly something to think about yeah, totally. And I guess there's a piece of that too when you're talking about that learning is how do we, and this is something we've talked about before as well, is how do you get the IT team, any of these students who are coming into this student leadership program, for want of a better word, uh, and your teaching staff to come together around some of this stuff so that you're not making decisions in a vacuum of knowledge? Because it'd be, I see it in the teaching side and I also see it in the IT side. You end up making decisions in a vacuum of knowledge. So you only know what you know. You don't know what you don't know. And so sometimes you're making decisions on infrastructure and devices because that's just all you know. And things yeah, are changing and and all your, the time, right? Rapidly you'll, changing. Yeah, you'll, you'll be, your view will be um, shaped by your experiences, right? And, and, you know, I might have had a good experience with Chromebooks and you might have had a good experience with iPads, say, and we come together and, and it's then who, who, who's going to get their way, you know? And it sort of comes down to, well, one person's going to make a big decision and push it. But that's what these frameworks are for is to kind of say, let's try some things. Let's work in smaller groups. Let's run a little pilot, get some feedback first. And something like my tech leadership team where I can push ideas to them and say, you know, as a team, this is our job. We've got to vet these things. We've got to look at potential improvements, but we've also got to look at weighing that against the complexity we're adding another system. You know, is that worth it? A lot of schools think innovation is just adding more things. Well, Mm. it's also about having, you know, streamlining and simplifying. I think there's a, there's a big, kind of I guess dichotomy in the in the thinking of IT that we just have to add a lot of stuff but then we forget about or how do we what are we doing to remove stuff how are we cleaning out the deadwood that that is actually the harder challenge in my view it's easy to add things I can add something you know run a project and get it up and running in a matter of weeks but we've had to remove you know network home drives for instance we've been deleting those we've been deleting those for three years all the various versions of them mm. to get people to you know archive and delete and then it's going to go read only and you know it takes six months in all these cycles and three years later you've still got two staff hanging on that you can't get them off these drives <laughs> so you know like that's taken a long time to to move through and i think that's somewhere you've got to think as well about simplicity it's an underrated thing but if you can have simplicity and a new staff member comes into your school and they understand the vision and it's simple and easy to digest and there's not stuff everywhere it's all streamlined. Uh, that's going to be a much better experience to teaching. Yeah. And I think that comes in. If you're looking at that plan where you've, you've done a, a bit of a, a pilot and then you've done a bit of a rollout and now you're gathering that data and you're looking at where the blockers are. One of the things you want to be looking for in that data is how do we optimize? And so what's the point of putting You're right. What's the point of going cloud if everyone's still storing stuff on thumb drives and hard drives and, in the teacher drives on the on a server and so on so there's got to be a process of part of that deployment is how do we lift and shift people from where they are to a new way of working we see that is 
incredibly hard. How do you, you know, decommission those servers and get people to put everything in Google Drive or OneDrive or, you know, how do you stop old habits, which essentially is just muscle memory, really, at the end of the day. You're just so used to doing it that way. It's quick. You don't have to think about it. It's a path of least resistance. But then you've got to do that in a way that brings people on the journey with you as well, hey? It doesn't alienate people. I mean, like you've got, you know, you're not the most popular guy when you say, I'm going to take away the thing you've been using for 10 years and you've found a good system for it. But I think in a lot of cases, it's necessary. Not in all cases, but I think in a lot of cases, it's necessary to do that to make sure there's room, there's headspace, there's, there's that, you know, virtual space, if you like, to innovate into rather than it being cluttered and full of legacy technologies. Yeah, totally. And I guess that's where you get to that 10x. And I guess t- transformation really happens in that last mile, right? So, mm. I mean, you get change, you're changing devices, you're upgrading your infrastructure. But if you want to talk about transformation in the truest sense of the word, that's when you're thinking two, three years down the track and you're starting to play a game of chess almost, right? I move this part because it's going to unlock this down the track and I'm seeing like three steps down the, down the path. That's where you can start to get transformative. Yeah, I totally agree. So tell me, Mike, I've got, I've got a triggering question for you. What's the best device? Oh, glad we got to this, eh? Hey? Yeah, and here's my thing. I always ask, you wouldn't believe how many times we get asked this question. Like, what's better, a Chromebook or a PC? or an iPad. And I'm like, better for what? So it always comes back to your vision. There is no right answer to it, to be completely honest. And it's not being evasive at all, because you know me, I like controversy, and I'd I'd wade into that in a heartbeat. But it truly does come back to your vision in terms of what are you trying to achieve? And sometimes I'll say better, and I'll say better for what? And they'll say learning. And I'll go, okay, but define learning. What about thinking? How How do you define what's better for thinking? There's a lot of research that it says that if you just type verbatim into a keyboard that you're not thinking the same way as if you're right with a pen. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, research coming out that's saying that keyboards are making our students dumber in terms of what they process, in terms of what they retain and then what they can, you know, recall later on. So maybe there's a, there's a, a place for digital linking in that in terms of learning, thinking and so on. So until you can define what better means and what learning means, what thinking means and those sorts of things, you're kind of going to have a hard time finding the answer to that question. Now it could be what's cheaper. That gets a discussion that comes up a lot. Just give me the cheapest. I want to go bulk. I don't want to go quality. I'd rather a hundred Chromebooks than 50 PCs because at least then I can say I bought a hundred. But then again, I'm saying, does that actually improve anything? What's interesting with the the cost question is I Mm. uh, often get asked this, you know, I did you go Chrome because it was cheaper. And, And when we were initially, looking at the strategy of Chrome, we'd come from a Windows one-to-one fleet. We didn't even factor into our, like we, we were asking kids to buy, you know, $1,100, $1,200 laptops. So uh, we didn't need to go back and we're having good success with that. We didn't need to go back to a $600, $500 laptop in order to get engagement in the program. That wasn't our driver at all. Um, it's been a nice byproduct of that because it makes us an easier sell, but it certainly wasn't the, the core driver. But in some schools it is going to be because in your environment, um, having a device in the classroom is is the primary function, you know, is the thing that you need to get in order to facilitate the learning. And the way I like to think about this is um, the hardware, you know, is just a conduit. It's just like sitting at a terminal. It's what you're going to do with the software, what you're going to enable with the, the cloud services and everything else that you're going to use at the school that matters. So if you're tied to a, a pen-based input, you know, go and have a look at those devices. Okay, how's the Surface for pen? It's pretty good. How's the iPad for pen? It's exceptional. How's the Chromebook for pen? It's rubbish. <laughs> you know, so you look at those three areas and say, well, okay, we're probably, if pen is our number one priority, we're going to go with the iPad. 
Um, but if pens may be a number 10 priority that you use from time to time, but it's not critical to the delivery and you know, you've just really got to get on and use the keyboard and type up documents and make presentations, then maybe you know the, the thin and light and cheap Chromebook's better uh, because you'll get more engagement because there's half the price of the PC or something like that. So you know, that, they're all the ways I'd be thinking about it. And also you've got to look at those hidden costs. I'm putting my IT guy hat on mm-hmm. with the device. The simplicity of the Chromebook was really attractive because I didn't have to hire people to manage 2,300 Windows laptops, all with Windows updates, all with group policies and needing to get apps on demand and having full hard drives and all these kind of problems uh, and local data that has to be you know, backed up or when you image it, you've got to pull it off. And you know, we would have, we would have uh, senior students in tears every year without fail because they'd lost their laptop and they didn't back it up, mm-hmm. you know, and well, we could back it up for them, but we priced that and it was, it was out of control. So, you know, start looking and thinking in those, in those ways of what's going to work for your particular needs and how your school's kind of structured already. Yeah. And I think that point about price too, is that yes, you can buy a Chromebook cheaper than an iPad, for instance, but then when you factor in all the licenses that you might need to buy in terms of school-wide apps to, to run that at a level that you need it to run in terms of creativity, maybe it would have been way cheaper to buy an iPad that had iMovie mm. on it already. You, know, had, you could do stop animation. You could do the different things that you needed to do. And now you're not going and buying this license and then that license and then that license and then adding all of that up. And we see this a lot in, in the school, uh, in the tech side. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, we see that a lot where they'll say, oh, the school's gone Chrome, but all of our art teachers need Photoshop. So we have to host a terminal server, which yeah. costs $50,000. Yeah. And then we have to buy Windows licenses for 30 seats of terminal server. And then kids can't get on because there's 31 kids in that class or something, or two classes want to use it at once. So all this complexity and cost comes out of the woodwork for what was seemingly at the beginning a cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk about uh, funding in the next podcast. So you can, uh, how, do you, how do you actually fund this? But I, the question always, I think like you need to follow the process we've taken during this podcast. You need to cast your vision and get that crystal clear. You need to build culture that embraces technology and change and, and what, what's needed there. And then you need to do community engagement really well. And you need to understand your learning design. Like this is how our teachers teach and this is how our students learn. And then you match the technology and the device to that learning plan. So often people want to start with the end in mind. So they say, well, what do I want? I've got Chromebooks. So now our learning has to match our Chromebook. Our infrastructure has to match our Chromebook. Our culture has to match our Chromebook. And so everything gets reverse engineered backwards, which to me is just a little bit um, ridiculous. So, uh, and then you go, but sometimes they start with the fact that I've got $100,000 to spend what's the most amount of devices I can get for that hundred grand. And then we'll reverse engineer everything out of that funding discussion. Whereas really it should be vision, culture, learning design, choose your technology and then figure out how we're going to fund this thing. I would never let money be the, the determining factor. I know it's a determining factor. It's not the determining factor because you can always shift priorities. There's grants out there. There's different ways you can, you can do it in terms of part, funded by parents, fully funded by parents, part funded by school. There's so many different ways to approach that discussion. So I'd never let technology or money be the place where you start. I think it's where you get to and then you just do some good leadership and problem solving to, to get those jigsaw pieces together. Would you agree with that? Uh, mostly. I think that there's, there is an element of bottom up as well where you do want to like I, I tend to work sort of top down and bottom up at the same time where you'll go, okay, well, we know in the back of my head, I've got a hundred K 
but I also know that I really like the features of this because it matches with the learning plan. And you sort of got to go flip-flop between the two and sort of look at, um, well, what are the features here? What are the features there? I want pen or I want this. You know, you can start there and then follow that path through and go, well, okay, I got to the top and I've realized that iPads are far too expensive. Or, you know, I got to the top and I realized that uh, it's not going to support the video editing suite that we need. And if we were to get rid of all the labs to fund it, then it's not going to work. So I think it's about sort of looking at both angles and just trying it um, in your head, you know, just working through it up totally. the chain and then looking at the top down and working through it down the chain. And then you'll sort of meet in the middle eventually and find that this is all compromise, isn't it? We're just weighing things. We're weighing features for cost. We're weighing, you know, reliability and ease of use for, you know, uh, all the opportunities and features that the device has. So I think it's just about balancing that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've, I agree, but I would I wouldn't let that be limited in my thinking. So if I got to the top and I was like, iPads are too expensive, I'd be like, how do I raise more money? Or you know, what what do I need to do to make this happen? Do I go instead of going one to one, do I go one to three? And, and yeah, make but that that's one? a that's a waiting again, isn't it? It's saying how much better are iPads than the next best thing? Mm -hmm. And you know, if we get to the top and we say it's, you know, the funding is a hundred k and we need a million, <laughs> you know, like how much better is it 10 times better? You know, we still have to work in the world of, of reality. So mm -hmm. I, I would say just balancing them as best you can, finding that best common ground that still meets the sort of top three needs, if you like, like he's meeting those, those important priorities in the school and you sort of can make the rest fit together and the rest work. Yeah. And I think part of that, like this conversation, we're almost saying like we've got a hundred grand to spend and we've got a week to spend it too. Um, look, three years down the track what can we do this year mm. what can we do next year i mean we'll dig into this more and i'm looking forward to discussing that because i think we're gonna uh, come at this from slightly different angles but yeah when we dive into some of that funding discussions and how you can do this like i've seen some really creative ways to get things paid which is which is really good so in terms of frameworks and and uh, so on we'll link some of those up in the show notes and it really is a lot of things that we've just been thinking through about how do we actually transform technology, education, learning because of that. There's a lot to do uh, with security. It comes with a lot of devices, but I feel like the Google, Apple and Microsoft are doing a lot in that space around securing data and, and so on. Privacy. I kind of just, yeah, privacy of data and so on. It seems to come with the territory these days. Uh, managing those devices is a really interesting discussion. You've got Google management licenses. You've got Intune for managing your PCs and you've got Jamf or something to manage your iPads. Um, and again, don't I'll do, you need to have a discussion around that too. We see teachers who have, let's say, iPads and they've got Jamf to manage it. And then every time they want to add an app, add an app on, they're sending a request off to an IT company to add the app, and the IT company sends them a several hundred dollar bill for for turning that on. Like trying to figure out where does that sit inside the school capabilities and and so on as well. Have you got any? advice for teachers or for schools around how, how much control to try and keep versus how much do you outsource? Is there some kind of metric around thinking on that? Yeah, that's very difficult. Very difficult. I think if you look at the models that work, it's when you give autonomy to people, whether it's, you know, middle managers in managing the IT or managing the digital curriculum or whatever it is, or whether it's the principal themselves. You know, I'm a big fan of the Victorian system, the state system, because it gives principals the final say, the buck stops with them. Uh, you know, they, the, the Department of Education works for the schools rather than, you know, more centralised models. And I'm not too familiar with New South Wales, but from my understanding is there's more of a centralised, 
you know, control where things are kind of handed down to the school and the school has to make do with it. So here's your building, here's your device, here's your whatever. Uh, if you've got feedback, let us know and we'll work a big project and we'll fix it. And I think, you know, that works. It definitely doesn't not work. But I think if you want to get that next 10% that do the hard yards, you know, the 90% of the work in, in pushing that last 10% and trying to innovate and, and see what's next, I think you've got to have uh, the ability to make decisions at the school level uh, that maybe aren't the decisions that have had that have come from the department. And, you know, I've been a big believer in that for my career and it's not been the easiest path because you've got to often go against the wishes of the department. We were, you know, one of the first G suite schools before that was kind of sanctioned, if you like, by the department. And we had to go it alone in a sense and sign away our, our lives um, to get that in. And now you look back and you think, okay, well, every, you know, G suite's offered now it's, it's managed, you know, so we were just sort of ahead of the curve there. And often that is a harder road to go down. And the other thing I'd caution as well is just following the leader. You know, often schools will just say, well, that's what this great school down the road is doing. So we'll do that because we, it's a safe choice and we, you know, we're not allowed to fail. Our parents won't allow it. So um, we just have to go with the thing that's good enough because we know that is working in some capacity rather than really aiming high and saying, how do we do this best in class? What's all the, all the factors, let's put them all together. Let's get everyone in the room. Let's, you know, really do something worthwhile and, and something that has momentum and weight to it. Yep, totally. It's uh, definitely one of those things. It's a, it's a process, right? It's a coming together. It's um, trying to bring all those jigsaw pieces together. It's almost like herding cats sometimes, isn't it? You've got stuff and energy tends to disperse. And how do you try and mm. keep that together and keep everyone moving in the same direction and be like that river that just can carve away rock over time if it just stayed focused and just stayed on path and and uh, kept moving towards it. So lots of, um, lots of things to discuss and uh, it's been really good. Maybe it'd be great as you're listening to this, just to use the Outcast podcast hashtag and give us a shout out on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and uh, tag us in and let us know one of the things you've been challenged by today or something that you're thinking of. Uh, maybe a question that you might have, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, also it'd be awesome if you just, uh, if you haven't done so yet, if your podcast player that you listen on uh, has a rating system, then just uh, drop a rating in there and leave some feedback so other people can uh, find the podcast and get the benefit from it as well. We're certainly enjoying making them and it's always a good discussion for Blake and I to do this. Uh, we often say we'd probably do this if no one was even listening just because we enjoy well, the banter and it helps us um, develop our thinking and sharpen our thinking as, as we put these together as well. Yeah, I like to learn along along the journey, you know, we can learn together because, you know, what, what my view is now might not be my view in three months. And, and it's always good to have this conversation, Mike, and, and I'm looking forward to, you know, bring some guests on as well and being challenged even more. So looking forward to it. Yeah. I got some, a few good ones lined up uh, as soon as this little mini series is over. Let's uh, chat about wins and fails for a sec. Uh, do you want to do your fail first or should I take the win? Uh, yeah, I'm going to do the fail this week. Um, and it's around cloud services. So we got a bill the other day for uh, Azure. Uh, we host one virtual machine in the cloud that does a little bit of um, authentication work for us. has a little script that runs on there. And basically that's like a service, like a computer that's sitting in a data center in Azure somewhere in, in Sydney. And it's basically available to us as a com computer. We can remote into it and run our services on it. So this is a real IT geeky one. But the cost of that was just going through the roof we, because there's other hidden costs around that. We have to have a virtual connection to it so we can securely, you know, um, bring it into our network without, it, you know, being exposed to the internet and things like that. And it was like $80 a month for us to run this one uh, server in the cloud. And that's kind of, when, when I heard that, you know, it's kind of 
counterintuitive to me with the cloud meant to be this sort of low cost, you know, they're buying power at, you know, hugely well bargained rates that so they're able to run the service cheaper. They're buying servers in, you know, 100,000 lots. So they should be getting them at, you know, 50% of the price that I can get them at and things like that. But, uh, but honestly, I can build a server for that cost almost every time. And, you know, if I had something like four servers in the cloud, that would be the equivalent of me hosting a cluster of four computers, highly available, highly redundant cluster of, of four servers in my data center every five years or six years replacing it. And that's sort of a normal rollover. Now, of course, that's gonna introduce some complexity, but putting things in the cloud isn't without complexity and technical debt either. So I feel like in a way, you know, cloud has definitely revolutionized us in the front end in what we're using with Gmail or any of these cloud, you know, Microsoft Teams, these cloud services, but it's sort of left a little bit lackluster, especially in schools and the, and the ever lowering price of server hardware, where it's making the decision hard to actually host your school in the cloud these days. And so, yeah, I've just noticed that it does get difficult. You know, we had once had an Amazon architect come out and explain to us how all their products fit together and where, what we could use and how it would work. And you needed all this stuff. You needed, you know, 50 products to do like a couple of basic things. And nice. you needed an architect to sit down with you and figure that out versus us just going to a supplier, buying a server and installing our services on it, which we know how to maintain because they're the things we're installing on it. So um, I just think there's a little bit of a, a dichotomy there. There's a little bit of a disconnect between this, this promise of the cloud and what's actually been delivered on the infrastructure side. Yeah, wow. Okay, well, that's the first I've ever heard of it because I've always heard that that sort of thing you can be paying cents on the dollar for almost. Yep. So it seems like it makes sense in one sense because if you look at how much free data Google and Microsoft alone give away in terms of mail capacity and you know Gmail 15 gig for every person, that must add up to like massive data centers. So they've, they've got to recoup their costs somewhere and unfortunately yeah, and you're paying for it by the sounds of it. What they're doing is not free, you know, but I just think, yeah, we haven't quite reached that point of where it's just seamless and we can get online. And the other, the other point as well is that there's this little shift I've noticed back away from cloud a little bit with servers where platforms like Docker or Kubernetes, which are big kind of uh, orchestration platforms where you can move your servers quickly and, um, you know, scale up to 15 workers and scale back down to one and all this sort of stuff. Those things are actually making their way into the small and medium enterprise, which is sort of a school level mm. uh, where it's getting so easy for us to deploy things. You know, we need a plugin or a script or a, or a service. We can just Docker compose one in, in 10 minutes and it's going to run on any hardware across any vendor and all this sort of stuff. So I think there's some of the technology advancements that ironically are making it more attractive to come back to a local infrastructure, which to most people would seem counterintuitive. Like, oh, that doesn't make sense. That's like running, running print advertisements in the newspaper instead of, you know, Facebook. <laughs> Just doesn't right. make sense in 2020. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely making more of a case, more and more of a case as, as that I guess that ratio clicks over where it's getting cheaper now and cheaper to buy your own hardware. I guess to the point where the cloud's having trouble competing with that, especially on the infrastructure side. Right. Well, that's super interesting in terms of our discussion we've just had for the last 50 minutes or so, I guess that uh, I would have just assumed that it's always cheaper to lift to the cloud, um, but maybe it's not. So yeah. well, in terms of getting that data, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Don't make assumptions. Yeah. I would have made a, look a, at a decision it. in a vacuum of knowledge right there. Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't want to say that the, the cloud is more expensive. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying yeah. in this particular instance of hosting servers, it is in a place where I would have thought we would see more innovation. We've seen not as much. It still yeah. is literally a computer sitting in the cloud for most things. Whereas, you know, on the front end of like, 
you know, storing a file, you don't need to know where that file is. It's like managed and replicated and backed up and there's version history. And I mean, from that point of view, it's been amazing. There's no doubt. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. There you go. I learned something new. Um, my win for the week is we've just been having a lot of meetings this week with different partners, Google, Microsoft, uh, Apple's coming up and uh, even vendor partners like Acer, Lenovo and so on. And it's been really interesting to see the attitude change of a lot of these partners over the last, I, don't, I want to say three to four months um, in terms of, it seems to me that the conversation has changed from how do we get our stuff into schools so how do we help schools? And I know there's the end game is to get their stuff into schools. I get that. But it seems to me like um, COVID has really changed the conversation. And I think where the win comes into this is that schools are really going to win on the back end of this. If you uh, are open to, you know, resources and free training and things like that, there's going to be a lot offered. Um, and again, it needs to come back to your vision of, you know, you're going to have so much opportunity, I think, in front of you. Uh, on the back of uh, these hard times that you're going to need to put up some good filters. But like we're seeing real cool creativity courses coming out that are going to help teachers. Uh, we're seeing some nice um, adaptions to the way technologies and offerings that technologies have been used in schools. So I'd be encouraging you, uh, if you're leading a school, you're leading change, just to be on the lookout uh, for your partners. And if you're in conversations um, with technology partners, reseller partners, uh, you're buying technology or you're talking to software vendors, just be asking them, like, what have you got in terms of resources, whether that be, you know, free training, whether that be in teacher grab and go packs, just to be asking the question because they're all starting to think that way. Uh, and I think it's going to end up where schools are going to win on the back end of this for sure. Yeah, it's great to see one of the, you know, one of the positive silver linings coming out of coronavirus is the the end of uh, these god awful conferences, these yeah. conferences that are just a flawed model of uh, you know trying to ship boxes and drop things on doorsteps and run away, and uh, and this is kind of forcing I think people to respend those marketing dollars in new and interesting ways that'll hopefully be more like a lesson plan for a teacher or you know something that's actually tangible and can be used. So that excites me because nothing worse than the the conference format, and I'm I'm sort of glad there aren't any on at the moment. It's been lovely. Yeah, it's definitely been a shift in thinking, which has uh, been well overdue. So, yeah, that's awesome. Hey, it's been a great conversation this week, Blake. Looking forward to episode number, where are we heading for? That's 16 this week, so episode number 17, when we dive into how do we get our technology transformation funded in a sustainable way. So looking forward to chatting next week. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening. For more episodes and show notes, visit utb.fyi forward slash outclassed.